So in addition to this series of messages, some of you are reading along in the book Created for Community, which goes over basic Christian beliefs. And then our uh, discussion group, which normally talks about the sermon, is, is kind of a hybrid Sunday school, which focuses on the basic Christian beliefs, too, and how they apply to our daily lives. So we'll be continuing that this morning as well in the lounge at 12.15. Uh, 11.15, yeah. Thank you. All right, so if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 3... We'll be looking at that passage this morning, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. That's on page 2 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Last week, Greg looked with us at the topic of humanity, and I haven't gotten a chance to, um, to listen to that talk, but I understand that he touched on what a paradox we humans are, that we're, we're gloriously made in, in the very image of God, and yet at the same time we're frail and we're weak and we're faulty and we're actually capable of the most heinous acts. Novelist Walker Percy is someone who has powerfully explored this paradox and in his book Lost in the Cosmos he asks a number of probing questions. Here are two of them. He asks, how is it possible for the man who designed Voyager 19 which arrived at Titania, a satellite of Uranus, three seconds off schedule and 100 yards off course after a flight of six years, how is it possible for such a man to be one of the most screwed up creatures in California? Why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Aris, which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life? Well, today we want to further explore this paradox of humanity. For, um, for millennia, humanity have, have been grappling to understand the human condition. How can we be so noble, so full of potential, so capable of the most amazing acts of love and, and goodness and bravery, and yet at the same time, how can the human race be so prone to selfishness and cruelty and violence and meanness? Well, today, the most popular answer for the bad side of humanity is lack of education. Educate people properly, the sentiment goes, and they will act nobly. And you know, there's some truth to that. In fact, right here in Asning, there's a program in Sing Sing Prison to help inmates get their college educations. And among the prisoners who do... When they're released, their chances of going on to live clean and productive lives and not to wind up in prison again absolutely skyrockets compared to those prisoners who don't take part in the program. Education is a powerful thing. But the idea that education alone is the answer simply doesn't fit all the facts. I mean, there are plenty of examples of educated societies like ours with plenty of dysfunction and badness. And plenty of educated people who are selfish, devious, and even criminal, right? So if lack of education alone isn't the answer to the negative side of human behavior, then what is? Well, today's passage gives its answer. This story teaches that there was a time at the beginning of human history when the human family was just starting out and the world was perfect. The first human beings lived together in pure love and in harmony and in innocence. They didn't know bitterness or regret or shame or poor self-image. 
They treated each other with affection and with delight, with understanding and with faithfulness. The world they lived in, the creation itself, was, was perfectly suited and tuned to, to meet their needs, to provide them with delights and, and, and purpose and meaning. And God had lovingly arranged all of this, and, and God too dwelt with and among these creatures that he'd made, and he walked with them in intimate relationship. But even then, there was an evil influence afoot, a serpent in the garden, right? Right? And this serpent seeks out the woman and, and plants questions and doubts in her mind. God doesn't really want you to be happy. He isn't really taking good care of you. He's not really on your side. Never mind that God has planted this beautiful garden for you to live in and given you abundant and, and delicious food to eat. Isn't it true that there's one tree that he's forbidden for you to eat from? See, he's holding out on you. God doesn't really care about you. That one tree is no doubt the real secret to your happiness. In fact, if you were to eat it, you would be like God himself. But God doesn't want that. No, he wants to keep you under his thumb, under his control. And the woman falls for it, right? She eats the fruit and, and her husband, instead of stopping her, he eats it with her. They disobey the one command that God had given them. And so then God comes looking for them. And, and God immediately knows that things have changed. They aren't like they were before. Something is different. Now the man and the woman are hiding. They're now self-aware. They're, they're self-conscious and, and, and they're ashamed of who they are. And so they're afraid. They're afraid of God. And God no doubt knows what's happened. But instead of moving in in anger to punish these humans for violating his command, God seeks them out, asking questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? What is it that you have done? This little story gives us profound insight into ourselves, into God, into what's gone wrong with each one of us and with this world that we live in. It teaches us that what we call sin is what's wrong with humanity and what's wrong with the world. And it explores what the essence of sin is. Now, you know, in today's world, you say the word sin, and a lot of people genuinely don't know what you're talking about. They may have some vague sense that sin is something bad. Maybe it involves having too much fun or something. But they don't really know exactly what it is. Or they just plain don't believe in such a thing as sin. After all, sin suggests rights and wrongs. And rights and wrongs suggest some sort of objective, objective moral standard or law. And a moral law suggests perhaps a lawgiver who has commanded these standards for us. And that all seems very unlikely or old-fashioned to many people today. And so how do you talk to people about Jesus saving us from our sins when, when they don't know what sin is? Or they don't believe that there are sins? Well, that's a good question for the 
discussion group afterwards. You'll have to come and find out. But, but for now, for those of us who do believe in sin, let's ask the question, what exactly is sin? Sin is a complex thing. It, it has layers. It, to simplify it down, I'd like to look at three layers this morning. These layers of what, or these layers um, that I want to look at, I'm, I'm going to start with the simplest, and then I'm going to work down to the deepest. So first, the simplest layer of what sin is, is that it's a violation of a law, of a rule. In our story, for example, God makes a law, a rule, a command. Do not eat from this tree. But the people eat it anyway. They, they break the rule. They violate the law. And that's sin at its most basic level. The Bible has two words that it uses when it talks about this kind of sin. They're the words trespass and transgression. Like the signs that the New York Water Authority have put up along the wood line behind the building here, you know, our, our kids used to love to play in those woods. They had a fort back there. They had special spots back there. They had games. But now there's a rule. There's a sign there that says, do not trespass into these woods. A rule draws a line, and it says, don't cross this line. And when God makes a rule, draws a line, and we cross that line, that's a sin. The Bible makes a number of rules, doesn't it? Uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't gossip, don't fail to be compassionate and open-handed toward the poor. And when we break one of these rules, even once, even a little bit, we have sinned, according to the Bible. Now, to explore this further, I want to show you a clip from the movie, uh, The Cider House Rules. This is a story, if you haven't seen it, about a young white man named Homer. You'll see him at the beginning of the clip. He grew up in an orphanage, and he was groomed by the doctor who is the head of the orphanage to be his successor one day. And so Homer is, is highly educated. But growing up in an orphanage, he's naive and he's inexperienced about the outside world. And he decides to go out and to experience the world, and he winds up getting a job picking apples. And so he lives for a time in, in a cider house with several illiterate migrant workers who are also there picking apples. And they're overseen by, by a man named Mr. Rose, a, a strong, forceful black man who you'll see at the end of the clip. And on the walls of, of this cider house where they live, there are five rules posted. And nobody can read. And so until Homer comes, they don't know what the rules are. So early in the movie, when, when Homer arrives there and they find out he can read, they ask him to, to read the rules. And, and Homer gets through the first two, and then Mr. Rose stops him and says, you know, they ain't our rules, Homer. We didn't write them. I don't see no need to read them. And as the story progresses, each character in the movie is dealing with huge decisions and, and issues and, and problems from murder to sexual unfaithfulness to illegal abortions to fraud and deception to incest. And then late in the movie, as, as all these different stories and, and problems are, are going on, they ask Homer to read all five rules again. And here's what happens. If we could dim the lights, make sure the sound is up. Please excuse the language at one point. Let's see what happens in the scene when they ask Homer to read the rules. Mm -hmm. 
Please don't smoke in bed. No, you're in the home. Please don't operate the grinder or press you've been drinking. Three, please don't go up to the room to eat your lunch. Well, that's the best place to eat lunch. Four, please, even if you are very hot, do not go up to the room to sleep. When they then go up to the room to sleep, they must be great. Then you don't do this, or then you don't move. Here's the last one. There should be no going up on roof at night. No, I don't need to say, don't go up on the roof. They don't need that at all. Now it's time when they're not that. They outrageous the moves. Who did it inside out? Who ran out those apples? That's the next side. Bring up all this mess. here it's a deep movie and like Genesis 3 it's a it's a story about humanity and about sin and figuring out what's right and wrong and throughout the movie each character is, is struggling with these things and and the scene that I showed you is symbolic of their struggle and their situation there, there are rules you, you either choose to obey them or you choose to disobey these rules and, and I don't know about you but there's a part of me that that relates to what Mr. Rose says at the end there. Did, did you catch what he said? He, he says, who lives in the cider house? Who, who grind up them apples, pressing that cider, cleaning up all this mess? Who just plain live here? Just breathing in that vinegar. And, and someone who don't live here, make them rules. These rules ain't for us. We the ones who are supposed to make our own rules, he says. In other words, the rules seem out of touch with reality. They're made by someone far off, detached, who isn't one of us, who, who doesn't understand, who doesn't have our best interests in mind. 
The rules feel foreign. They feel arbitrary. They feel imposed. It, it seems like I, like we, could, could do a better job of, of, of making up rules for ourselves, rules which make sense to us. And that's exactly what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3 is about. When they eat from that tree, Adam and Eve are, are saying to God, we know better than you what the rules should be. And so from now on, we're going to make up our own rules. We're going to decide what's right and what's wrong. You know, the heart of sin isn't so much that we insist on breaking the rules. It's that we insist on making the rules. That's what the serpent was encouraging Eve to do in the garden by eating from that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. To not trust God to make the rules, but, but to rather become like God by divine, defining for, for herself what was good and what was evil. And I have to tell you, I've done this far too many times in my own life. But, but I sugarcoat it. You know, I, I tell God, yes, you're God. You, you deserve to be obeyed, and, and I'll obey you, except when I won't. But I'll obey you most of the time. But, but what I'm doing is this. I'm saying to God, okay, let, let's get in the car, and we'll go where you say to go. But just in case, I'm going to drive, okay? And, and you tell me where to go, and, and I'll go there. Um, but I'm going to keep my hands on the steering wheel. That way, just in case you say to go somewhere that I don't think is a good idea, I can overrule you and, and I can go where I think is best. I reserve the right to make the rules. And yeah, you've got a lot of good input. Thank you, God. Now, why do I do that? It's because I don't fully trust God. I don't trust that, that he fully has my good in mind. I don't believe that he really was thinking about my best interests when he made the rules. I, I don't believe that, that he really understands what it's like to live in the cider house. But here's what I'm missing when I think that way. Two things. First, I'm, I'm forgetting that God made the world. That, that he's the world's creator, that he's my creator. I'm forgetting that God knows how it's all designed to work and, and how it can go off the rails and, and, and that the rules are God's instruction manual aimed to keep us all healthy and whole and even happy, to, to help us to keep everything running, running smoothly and optionally, or optimally. The second thing I, I, I forget when I want to make up my own rules is, is that God did come down and live in this world. That in Jesus, God did come down and live in the cider house. That God does know what it's like. And, and so the rules are not some arbitrary imposition from outside, but rather they're written and they're upheld by one of us. Someone who really understands the human situation. So that's sin. It's violating God's rules. But that's only the surface of things, believe it or not. There's a deeper layer. And that is, second, that sin is violating a relationship. In fact, we learn from the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, that for us today who live after the time of Jesus, the rule's primary purpose is to point us to the relationship. 
The rules are, are only still there to teach us the mind of God, to teach us the heart of God, but the rules no longer have authority in and of themselves to condemn us when we break them because Jesus has taken the penalty for breaking the rules. God came in Jesus to the cider house to live among us, to experience what we experience, to, to teach us how to live and to reconcile our relationship to him. Not to get us to be better rule keepers, but to restore our relationship with God. We see this relational dynamic in, in Genesis 3. It used to be that, that God walked with the man and the woman in the garden, that they enjoyed relationship. But then the, the man and the woman doubted God's goodness and his intention toward them, and, and they struck out on their own. And then before they knew it, they were hiding from God. The relationship had been broken. Intimacy and delight were replaced with shame and with hiding. Sin goes beyond violating God's rules. It involves violating our relationship with God. Now let me give you an example of how this works. Let's say my wife made a rule on our wedding day. If we could have the next slide. Um, aww. aww, yeah. <laughs> Let's say she made a rule, no cheating on me. Fair enough? Now, if I do cheat on her, I'd be violating that rule. But, but much more than violating the rule, I'd be violating the relationship, right? I'd be breaking her heart. I'd be, I'd be straining the relationship. I'd be creating distrust big time. No wonder God uses this various, very image for his relationship with his people, especially in the book of Hosea. If you're familiar with that story, God instructs the prophet Hosea to go out and marry a loose, unfaithful woman. And when uh, she then leaves Hosea later for other lovers, God says, see, that's exactly what my people have done to me. God's people at that time were leaving the worship of God. They were leaving God to worship a Canaanite God called Baal. They were embroiled in political intrigue. They were trying to figure out um, how through various alliances to avoid being dominated by the growing Assyrian Empire. And instead of turning to God and trusting God, they were trusting in Baal and they were trusting in their own political strategies and machinations. Their leaders were using deception and, and corruption, uh, whatever it took. But they had no interest in trusting God. And God says through the prophet Hosea, you are like an unfaithful bride. You've, you've run off after other lovers and you've left me here with a broken heart. Sin is a violation of relationship. Remember that the next time you're tempted to do something that God disapproves of. Don't just think you're breaking one of God's rules. You are doing that. But, but realize as well that, that you're actually breaking God's heart. That God loves you, that, that God wants to be close to you. He wants to be close with us, and, and our sins just push him away. They, they disappoint him, they break his heart, they cause him anguish. And our sins seldom just affect our relationship with God, they, they usually also affect our relationships with other people. We, we see that in the garden with Adam and Eve too. 
after they eat the fruit, they hide from God. But, but not only do they hide from God, no, no sooner is their relationship with God broken that they start blaming and accusing one another, pointing their fingers at one another. And then Cain kills Abel and the cycle of sin and broken relationship just continues among humanity. You see, God created the world as a perfect whole, a perfect web of relationships. You could think of it as, as um, God's creation as, as a spider web, as a fragile, beautiful web with dew on it, glimmering in the, the morning light. And, and God is at the center, and, and we're each connected to him as we're connected to each other. And, and around the edges, we're, we're also connected to the creation that God has made. The world is, is finely tuned to support us, and, and yet it depends on us to conserve it, to steward it. And when we break that, that first relationship with God who's at the center, we very quickly, all those other relationships begin to, to fray and to unravel too. And boy, in today's world, we've become masters at trashing relationships. After all, today, the, the individual, the, the individual consumer is king. He should have what he wants. Her money is hers to spend how she likes. He can be anything he wants to be. She can go anywhere she wants to go. We're free. We're free to pursue happiness for ourselves. And, and when relationships get in the way, as they often do, we can just kick that other person to the curb. Just like they're any other product that we get from the store. As long as they provide what we need, meeting our needs for, for sex, for romance, for excitement, for companionship, for financial support, for stroking our egos, then we, we love them and we stick with them. But, but when they fail, we move on. And we treat the environment that way too. We don't, by and large, make our decisions about land based on the affection and the appreciation that we have for that land or our responsibility before God to care for that land and what lives on it. No, that sounds too sentimental. It sounds too contrary to progress. No, we use the land. We, we extract the resources, and, and when they're gone, we move on. We run roughshod over relationships all over the place. It's sin in its rawest form, violating relationships for our own selfish and our own arrogant ends. And, and we've so mastered this approach to life in today's culture. We're so good at it with our technology and our power that it seems so normal and so right to us. So sin is more than violating rules. It's also violating relationships. But it's more than that too. Believe it or not, there's still a deeper layer. That is third, sin is an inner bentness, an inner bentness. This layer is deeper still because now it's not just about our actions. It's not even just about our words or even our thoughts. Now it's about our very hearts. Before we do anything, before we say anything, before we even think anything, there's already sin there in our hearts. Last week we were at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference and, and two of the teenagers who were there got into a bike accident. They crashed into each other. And, and they were okay, but their bikes were not so lucky. And, and I saw one of their bikes. The wheel looked something like this. Bent. Now, now how do you think a wheel like that rolls? 
Not so well, right? Not very smoothly, not very comfortably, not very straight. And morally speaking, that's what each of us is in our hearts. We're bent, we're, we're crooked, we don't roll straight. Especially when we're living at high speeds like too many of us are. We, we can't stay on the narrow path, the, the straight and narrow. We keep thumping and we keep wobbling off the road and into one moral ditch or the other. We're twisted, we're crooked, we're, we're bent. The wonderful image of God in us that, that Greg looked at with us last week has become marred and, and distorted. We're bent away from God and we're bent in on self. And the Bible has words for this kind of sin, especially in the Old Testament where the Hebrew language is so vivid. Words like in, iniquity, which literally means bent or crooked. Words like perversity, crookedness, depravity. We still talk about crooks, you know, crooked people. And so this crookedness, this bentness prevents us from being what God longs for us to be. And the Bible has other words for that. Words like upright and straight and having integrity. Sin at its deepest level isn't just what we do or even what we think. It's, it's also who we are. Now, it's not all of who we are or even the essence of who we are, thank God. We're not all bad. We're not all crookedness. As Greg stressed last week, God has created us in his own image to be glorious and noble and awesome, and we still are. But we've also become bent and crooked and warped, and we need God to straighten us out again. And you know, over the years, I've become more and more aware of my own sinfulness, my own bentness. I think it has something to do with life experience, with uh, realizing how I handle various of life's challenges as, I, I come, as they come along and, and uh, being disappointed with how I've done with some of them. Of course, getting married was a big eye-opener uh, as to who I really was inside, both an eye-opener for Anne and for me. <laughs> Um, and having kids was another eye-opener. Uh, the parents are all nodding. Yeah. I assume about themselves, not about me, maybe both. <laughs> and you know, I'm so aware of my bentness today that it's tempting to despair and, and just give up on trying not to sin. I mean, I can be over, so overwhelmed by how there, there's a taint, there's a, there's a faultiness, there's a bentness to so many of my thoughts and my motivations. There's so much sin, on, sin in me. Why, what, what's the point of trying not to sin? But what I also need to remember, what I try to remember, is that God is at work in my life in two ways. First, he's teaching me to drive straight even with a bent wheel. Or as the saying goes, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He's teaching me how to do what's right, even though my heart doesn't always want to. But more than that, second, God is actually straightening me out. I'm less bent than I used to be. Because God is faithful. God is at work in me. He's, he's redeeming that wonderful potential that he put in me when he created me. He's, he's making me whole again. He's teaching me to love. He's teaching me to be generous. He's teaching me to be courageous about the right things. All right, well, I'm out of time. There's a lot more we could say about sin. I mean, I've only touched on individual sins. 
I haven't even gotten to structural or systemic sins that are in this world. But again, you'll have to come to the discussion group for that. So here's the challenge I want to leave you about, leave you with. Has God shown you anything new today about your own sin? Has he, has he pricked your conscience about anything? Will you confess it to him? Will you admit it to him? He already knows it's there. You might as well. And then will you get your eyes back on Jesus, who God promises is faithful and is just and will forgive us from all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Let's pray. God, we're sorry that we have taken this beautiful world that you've created and these wonderful, awesome, glorious selves who you've made in your own image and we have trashed them. We've run roughshod over it all. And often we've, um, we've defended ourselves and basically rationalized it all and said, it's someone else's fault. We're okay. We ask for your forgiveness because for these things we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. We ask that as we go day by day that you would show us more of our sin so that you can straighten it out, so that you can cleanse it, but even more so, so that we can look to Jesus and experience you're calling us to greater things. You're straightening us out. You're purifying us and remaking, restoring the image of God in us so that we can better reflect you, so that we can live more whole and lovely and beautiful lives. In Jesus' name, amen.